I'm Loralee Siemens and you're listening to Church History. Today we're talking about theologians, heresy, and legends. In our last episode, we talked about Perpetua and her death and how that really changed the way that society viewed the games. In the year 202, the same year Perpetua died, another man was killed. His name was Leonodes. Now, his son, Oregon, heard his father was going to be executed. Oregon was a very young boy, but wanted to be executed with his father. His mother knew he would not give up until the guards agreed to kill him. So she hid all his clothes so he would be trapped at home. She knew he would not run all the way to the execution naked. Oregon was devastated at the loss of his father and decided to spend every day memorizing the Bible. He also refused to eat every Wednesday and Friday and dedicated those two days to prayer. We're going to return to the life of Oregon later. Now, the emperor's hatred for Christianity only grew, and he headed to Britain, which was ruled over by Rome at the time. He arrived in Britain in the year 208 and was shocked to find a thriving church in Britain. These crazy Christians have spread their disease to every corner of Rome and beyond. He immediately called for the death of every church leader. Now, the church in Britain had up until this time been able to worship in peace, and they were not expecting this brutal command. Leaders of the church were taken into the streets and beheaded. One priest fled and escaped to a nearby village. In the village, he was caught by a high-ranking Roman soldier named Albin. Now, Albin was struck by the priest's faith and peace at the thought of dying. Instead of killing him or turning him in, Albin allowed the priest to live in his home. The priest lived in his home, and instead of acting afraid, as most refugees would do, the priest continued to praise and worship Jesus Christ. Albin began to ask the priest about Jesus Christ, and after hearing about the man who had lived a perfect life, died at the hands of Romans, and then came back to life, conquering death and sin, Albin confessed his sins and asked for forgiveness and became a Christian. He then spent his evenings with his hidden priest, learning more about the scriptures. But the governor heard that Albin was hiding a priest and sent soldiers to find the priest. Albin heard they were coming and gave the priest clothes to wear so he could escape unnoticed. And Albin put on the priestly robes so the governments would chase him instead of the priest. When they caught Albin and found out it was not the priest but this Roman guard, they were so angry. They brought Albin to the governor. Now, just as Albin was brought before the governor, he was in the process of offering his drink offering to his gods. So he called Albin to come and participate with him. If Albin chose to participate in the drink offering, his life would be spared. But Albin refused. The governor then had him beaten, flogged, and then brought back. He gave him another opportunity to participate in the drink offering. Albin still refused, so he was ordered to be taken to a different town and beheaded. Now, the people in the town were hoping to save the life of Albin, so they went ahead of the soldiers and tore down a bridge that was the only pathway to the town where the beheading was supposed to take place. When the soldiers arrived at the river, there was no way to cross. But Albin prayed. He told the people he was not afraid to die for his faith. The next day, when they awoke, the river had dried up, and the soldiers were able to cross without the bridge. 
the soldier who was given the job to behead Alban was so moved by his dedication to Jesus Christ that he put down his sword and said that he wanted to be a Christian and follow Jesus Christ. He therefore could not kill Alban, who was now his brother. At that moment, the priest arrived. He had heard that Alban was supposed to be killed in his place, and he arrived to say he was giving himself up freely to let Alban go free and he would die. A soldier then came forward and was given the order to kill all three men. All three of the men, Alban, the priest, and the guard who had committed himself to Jesus Christ, were killed on June 22nd in the year of our Lord, 209. The name of the town where Alban lived is still there today in Britain, and it's named after him, St. Albans, and it's about 20 miles northwest of London, England. While we can look at this time period in church history with awe and respect how they stood for truth no matter what, a deeper look into the history, we can see that during this time period, some false teachings was emerging that was impacting our church even today. We're going to talk about some of those heresies, and as we learn about them, think about sects of the church or cults today that preach these same teachings. Or even more sadly, some of these teachings are creeping into our evangelical world today. First of all, the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God was evil. The Gnostics believed that the world was created for the purpose of keeping the human soul trapped in an evil physical body. The God who created us was evil, a power-hungry evil God. But Jesus came to give us a secret knowledge that would free our souls from the bodies we are trapped in. Today when you hear people say when someone dies they are now free from the trap of their bodies, this is from this Gnostic's teaching. The term Gnostic is from the Greek word knowledge, and those who followed the teachings of Gnosticism believed that they could be given little bits of secret knowledge at a time, and they had to prove their worth to get the next piece of information. The Gnostics also believed that Jesus never had a real body, that his body was simply an illusion. The Gnostics were very good writers and wrote a lot of books. Some of the more famous books were the Gospel of Truth, the Three Natures, the Apocalypse of Adam, the Gospel of Matthias, the Gospel of Philips, the Acts of Peter, and the Acts of Thomas, or some people call it the Gospel of Thomas. Even today, there are people who say these books should have been included in the New Testament. At this point in history, and we're at the early 200s, the church has not officially picked the New Testament books, although Polycarp, who we talked about in our last episode, had published a New Testament in response to some of these exact teachings. One of the men who was very vocal about the errors of Gnostics' teaching was Hippolytus. He spoke and wrote in Greek, and his writings were very popular when he first wrote them. However, Greek was quickly being a forgotten language, and most people were starting to speak and read in Latin. So his writings were lost by the church for many years and discovered by historians much later. But during his life, he wrote and spoke about the problems with heresy, and more specifically the problems with Gnosticism. He was trained by Uranus, who was trained by Polycarp, who was trained by the Apostle John. He was so brave and strong and had so much courage in how he spoke out against the errors being accepted in the Church of Rome, and they made him very popular amongst true Christians. He was appointed as the Bishop of Rome against the orders of the Church at the time. Rome saw him as a problem as well and had him arrested. Instead of killing him, they used him as a slave in the mines. 
He died in the mines and his body was returned to Rome for burying. Now, if you remember Oregon from the beginning of our episode, he's no longer a small child, but a grown man in his early 20s. A wealthy woman had seen Oregon's dedication and had become his personal teacher to this young boy. He learned Greek and was given a job as a manuscript editor and copier. At the age of 18, he was made the head of a school in Alexandria. One of Oregon's faults was that he was very rash. The little boy who wanted to die with his father had grown into a young man who was willing to do anything to please God, but didn't always think things through. At the age of 18, he was worried that some people might think he was acting sexually because of his age and the fact that he wasn't married. He ended up castrating himself after reading Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Later in life, he regretted that choice for obvious reasons, but also because the church would not allow him to be a bishop because he had done this. He also read Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, and because of that verse, he had only one coat. He refused to wear shoes. He would not take any pay for teaching at the school, and he would not eat any meat or use a bed. Oregon wrote a book called On First Principle. This was the first systematic theology book ever produced. He learned Hebrew so he could read the Old Testament in its original language. One of the things Oregon was famous for was finding Jesus in the Old Testament through the literary use of allegory. Oregon's first fault was that he was rash. His second fault was that he overthought things. Because of his second fault, in his later years, he began to teach things that were straight-up false theology. Oregon spent so much time in school, he began to spend his time debating and philosophizing, and this led to some very strange theology. First, before we get into that, we need to know a little bit about the city of Alexandria, which is in present-day Egypt. This is where his school was, where he was the head of it. It was known as a city of learning for all of Rome, and the school that was set up to train preachers ended up spending most of its time sitting around in circles discussing philosophy and began to develop what historians call Alexandrian theology. And here's what that looked like. Oregon and others like him used Greek philosophy to defend God's truth. The The two truths were made into one. They believed this is how to reach the educated people, make Christianity work with philosophy. Some of this way of looking at the world led to the belief that souls pre-existed the body. After sin, God had to make bodies for all the souls that already existed, but couldn't live without a body because sin had entered into the world. So once a body was created, then God paired up souls with bodies. Clearly bad theology. Another horrible theology that came from this group is the idea that when Jesus paid the ransom, he paid it to the devil, that God made a deal with the devil. I will give you my son if you release all the souls you have in prison. But God didn't tell him about the resurrection and ended up tricking Satan. Also, not great theology. Another theology was universalism, which is that eventually everyone is saved. Hell is only for a short time. It's kind of like purgatory. Perhaps the most dangerous theology was the theology of allegorical teaching. By the time Oregon died, he basically believed that nothing what was said from the Bible was true. It was mostly just allegory. Oregon was not the only famous theologian to come from Alexandria. There was also Clement of Alexandria. He was another famous theologian. Now, this is different than the one we talked about last week. 
Clement of Alexandria used his theology to preach to the Greeks. He wrote a book called The Tutor, which was for new Christians. He also wrote a book called Carpetbags, and it's a book just full of his ideas. But Clement of Alexandria taught that the Jews had the Old Testament to prepare them for Jesus, and Plato, God sent Plato to prepare the Gentiles. He put Plato and the Old Testament on the same plane. Basically, he was saying that Plato was inspired just as much as the Old Testament was inspired. Now, to go against the school in Alexandria, another school was in Carthage, which is in modern-day West Africa. The main teacher here is Tertullian. He's a lawyer who had become a Christian, and he was defender of the faith, and he fought back against the false teachings coming out of the school in Alexandria. One of his famous sayings was, What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What he was saying is philosophy has nothing to do with the Bible. The Old Testament was for the Jews and the Gentiles. You must keep the scriptures pure. Tertullian wrote books as well, and he became the defense of the gospel. The most famous one is the Apology, which is still read today. The most famous theology that Tertullian debated was the idea of one God, but three persons. Tertullian debated people who were teaching that God had three names, the Father used in the Old Testament, Jesus when he was on earth, and the Holy Spirit is the name being used by the church. It was just different names of the same God. He also debated people who were teaching that there were three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Tertullian taught that there was one substance, but three persons. The word he invented to explain this was the Trinity. This was the first time the word Trinity was used. Tertullian taught that we have one God, and he's one being. But while human beings are one being and one person, God is a different being, and his being is one being, but three persons. These persons communicate with each other and have different roles. This is the idea of the Trinity that the church accepts today. Meanwhile, Oregon back in Alexandria, his goal in life was to be killed for his faith. One of the strange things about him was that while so many people were killed for their faith at this time, Oregon was left alone. He was, however, finally arrested and put in prison and sentenced to death. But the emperor who ordered his death was killed in a battle and Oregon was set free. He died just before his 70th birthday from complications from a beating he received while he was in prison. He died in the year of our Lord, 254. His teachings are a paradox for Christian historians and Christian theologians. His early writings are full of so much amazing truths, and they've been used for years to teach theology. However, his later years are full of so much false teachings that some people won't even study his early teachings. Satan has tried everything to end the church. The church has been eaten by lions, crucified upside down, beheaded, beaten, and the church only grew and spread. Then Satan sent bad theology, and that made the church decide what they believe, debate it, work it out, and the church still continued to stand. Satan could not defeat us. There's one more story from this time period that we're going to end with, because it's probably the most famous story from this time. Perhaps the most famous martyr from this time period was a man named Valentine. However, most historians believe that the story of Valentine we have today was taken from four different martyrs who all had the same name, Valentine. All of the Valentines lived in Rome. The first one was killed before a Roman festival to worship the goddess Juno. In this festival, the boys in the town drew names of the girls in the town, and the boys were then allowed to sleep with the girl they had picked. 
They were allowed to do basically anything they wanted to this girl. Valentine opposed this and was beaten with clubs and beheaded. The date of the festival was February the 14th, and some historians believe that later in church history, when pagan holidays were given Christian names, this holiday was changed to St. Valentine's, but we're going to get into that detail in a few weeks. Another Valentine was a Christian who was a very young man, probably even a young teenager. He was arrested and sentenced to die. He left a note in his prison for his family that said, remember your Valentine. A third Valentine was a priest who lived under the rule of Emperor Claudius. Rome was at war again, as they tended to always be, and the emperor needed more soldiers. Since the soldiers who were married were exempt from fighting in the battle, he ordered that no more marriages could happen. Valentine, however, continued to perform marriages and was killed for it. The last Valentine was a leader in the church who was arrested and in his court was asked to offer incense and worship Caesar. He refused and was sentenced to death. The jailer in charge of Valentine became friendly with him and told him about his daughter who was sick. Valentine prayed for his daughter who was healed. On the day of his execution, he wrote a note for the jailer and his daughter, encouraging them to continue living their life for Jesus Christ. It was signed, Your Valentine. On February 14th, we celebrate St. Valentine's Day. No one is sure which one of these men the holiday was named after. It could be all of them. But we know that each of these men lived, and each one is an example for us to follow. As we wrap up today's episode, the church is now almost 300 years old. She is growing and can't be stopped. She's no longer a new religion. She's well-established across every area ruled by Rome and beyond Roman borders. She is still persecuted and hated. But what if all that changed? What if Rome embraced the church instead of trying to stop it? Would that be good or bad for the church? Well, before Rome embraces the church, there's one more Roman leader who is going to do what he can to end the church. The death and the violence is about to escalate. I'm Loralee Siemens, and you're listening to Church History. For more videos, blogs, and podcasts, visit loraleesiemens.com.